Romans chapter 8. We're going to focus on just one verse this morning, verse 4. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Last Sunday morning, we looked at verse 3, which you'll recall if you were here, was about the purchase of our freedom. Our freedom from the condemnation we deserve because of our sin, because we are guilty before God the judge, and our freedom from the dominating power of sin in our hearts, in our lives. Verse 3 was about the purchase of that freedom, freedom from condemnation and from sin. God did what the law couldn't do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. That's what we looked at. That's the purchase of our freedom. Now in verse 4, we come to the point of our freedom. What's the point? What's the purpose of God freeing us from condemnation and sin? God saved us on purpose. What is that purpose? That's what we're going to look at together this morning. But first, let's pray for God's help, and then we'll begin. God, we come to you again this morning asking for your help because we acknowledge that we need it. We need clear minds and alert bodies and soft hearts. We need the same spirit who inspired these words to illumine these words so that we can rightly understand them and so that we can rightly apply them to our hearts and lives. So would you help us now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8, I'll read starting at verse 3, and again our focus is going to be on verse 4. These are the words of God. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We're going to walk through this verse under the two headings you have there in your sermon notes. Number one, fulfilling the law and number two, walking according to the Spirit, those two points corresponding to the two halves of verse 4. Let's look more closely at the first half, which again reads, as you can see, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So this is fulfilling the law. There are three things I want you to notice here. First of all, there's a purpose clause at the beginning of the verse. A purpose clause, in order that. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us what the purpose of our freedom is, what the point of our freedom is. Why is it that God has done what he's done to set us free from condemnation and from sin? It is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God sent his son on purpose for a reason. God saved you and me on purpose for a reason. There was a point 
to him purchasing our freedom from condemnation and from sin. And it was so that we would have the ability to fulfill the law. Of course, there were other reasons he did what he did. In fact, it's important to remember that the ultimate reason he did what he did was for his own glory. That's why he does everything he does, for his own glory. Kids, many of you have learned this in the first three questions and answers of the kids' catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Or God made all things. And then comes this third question and answer, which is so important. Why did God make you and all things? And the answer is, for his own glory. For his own glory. The reason he made us and all things, as well as the reason he redeemed us through Christ, was for his own glory. That's the primary purpose of the purchase of our freedom. It was to bring glory to God. But one secondary purpose that actually leads to that primary purpose was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In order that we would have the ability as his redeemed people to fulfill the law. Just like the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt so that they could serve God in the wilderness and ultimately in the promised land, so we've been freed from slavery to sin so that we would serve God by walking in obedience to his law. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He redeemed us from lawlessness, not so that we would continue in lawlessness, of course, but so that we would be purified and so that we would be zealous for good works for his glory. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works, Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The point of our redemption was so that we would serve our Redeemer. The point of our salvation was so that we would walk with our Savior. God saved us. God set us free from sin in order that we would have the ability to walk in his holy and righteous and good law. Two things here by way of application. First, there are times in our lives when we struggle with knowing what the purpose of our lives really is. We may even wrestle in our darkest moments with whether there is a purpose at all. What's the point of it all? What's the point of living? Well, the Bible says, God says, that every single one of us has a purpose. And that purpose is to know God. 
to know him and to glorify and enjoy him, him who made us on purpose and who redeemed us on purpose. And one of the reasons he redeemed us is in order that the righteous requirement of his law would be fulfilled in us, in our daily lives, so that we would serve him with our lives and walk with him in our lives. And if you understand that, if you embrace that by faith, it'll fill your life with purpose. It'll fill every day, every part of the day, every moment with a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment as you seek to fulfill the law of God by the enabling grace of his spirit. Secondly, with all this in mind, I think it's encouraging to remember that God's purposes will not be thwarted. God's purposes will be fulfilled. Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's purpose in freeing you and I from condemnation and from sin is that the righteous requirement of his law would be fulfilled in us, that we would serve him, that we would walk with him in our lives, and he will accomplish that purpose in us. God is more committed to your growth in grace than you are or ever will be. Sure, we have a role to play in our sanctification, a very important role. Actually, if we're not fulfilling that role, we should be freshly challenged by that this morning. But we should also be freshly encouraged, knowing that God will accomplish his purpose. He will enable you to serve him and to walk with him. So that's the first thing we should notice in the first half of verse four, this purpose clause, in order that. The second thing follows what he says about the law. He refers to the righteous requirement of the law. We should note that the law of God is a requirement, not a suggestion. When God gives us his law, he's not presenting us with options, He's presenting us with obligations. He is our creator and he is our king and when he gives us his law, it is to be obeyed. Shorter catechism number three, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The law of God is a requirement Also note that the law of God is a righteous requirement. As Paul said back in Romans 7, the law is holy and righteous and good. And the law is righteous, of course, because God is righteous. The law is a transcript of his righteousness. It is a reflection of his own righteous character. 
I think this exposes one of the ways much of our culture, sadly, is in rebellion against God. Because much of our culture denies the righteousness of God's law, especially in the area of sexuality. Much of our culture sees the law of God regarding sexuality as oppressive, outdated, as not righteous, not good for human flourishing. But what I think many people don't understand is that the laws in the Bible come from God, not man. They're not man-made and therefore subject to error and to amendment from time to time. No, we're talking about the law of God. The eternal, unchanging, unchangeable law of God. The standard for our sexuality is not the ever-changing opinions of men. It's the never-changing character of God. And God is holy and righteous and good. And therefore, God's law is holy and righteous and good. Now, when we see that phrase in verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law, we might wonder... What does that mean for us as believers? How should we think about the righteous requirement of the law? Are we still required to obey the law as those who are no longer under law but under grace? The answer is yes. We are still required to obey the law. But the question is, what for? not for our justification because Christ has already fulfilled that requirement for us. The law requires perfect obedience and we have a long track record of disobedience. But Christ obeyed perfectly for us and he atoned for all of our disobedience, for all of our sins. And so when it comes to our justification, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in Christ, by Christ. But now that we are justified, the righteous requirement of the law is actually being fulfilled in us, by us. This is the third thing we should notice in the first half of the verse here. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It was fulfilled perfectly in Christ and by Christ, and God's purpose is that it would now be fulfilled in us and by us, even though that happens imperfectly in this life. Our freedom is a freedom from condemnation and from sin and to obedience to God's law. God has set us free so that we could fulfill his law so that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. That's why Paul says later in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled perfectly in Christ, by Christ. And God's purpose is that it would now be fulfilled in us, by us, by the strength of Christ, and by the enabling grace of the Spirit. I would encourage you to take your hymnal out for just a minute and turn to the back of your hymnal to page 859. Page 859. I want to read a few paragraphs of the Westminster Confession of Faith on this. Chapter 19 on the law of God gives a great summary of the teaching of the Bible on what we're thinking about together. I want to read paragraphs 5 through 7. We'll take a few minutes on this. Paragraphs 5 through 7 of chapter 19 of the Confession of Faith. Again, page 859 at the back of the hymnal there. Paragraph 5. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator, who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation." So think of our phrase in Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirement of the law. The law is binding on all people at all times, even on those who've already been justified. And the gospel doesn't dissolve or weaken this obligation. Yet, as we'll see, if we're in Christ, we're no longer under the covenant of works. That is to say, we're no longer under the burden of trying to keep the law for our justification. Paragraph 6, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, praise God, but we might wonder, what's the point of the law then in my life now as a believer? Yet, is it of great use to them as well as to others? In that, as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. So think of the verse in Psalm 119. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. So in other words, it shines the searchlight on our sin, and in a sense, it shines the spotlight on our Savior, whose perfect obedience we need. 
It continues, it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. In other words, we don't earn those blessings. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. So the law has a number of uses for us, even though we are no longer under the law as a covenant of works. It is our guide. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It shows us our sin. And in light of the gospel, our ongoing need for our Savior. It discourages our disobedience by its threatenings and it encourages our obedience by its promised blessings. Or we could think of it this way. It's, a, again, a searchlight on our sin a spotlight on our Savior, and then a flashlight on our path. Paragraph 7. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. You can put your hymnals away. So the law is not contrary to the gospel. The law is not contrary to the gospel. So long as we understand the law rightly, so long as we relate to it rightly, the law and the gospel sweetly comply with one another. And God's purpose is that the Spirit would subdue our wills and enable our wills to do freely and cheerfully what the law requires to be done. I think we should make that our prayer for ourselves and for each other as we pray for each other, that we would rightly understand the relationship between the law and the gospel, that we would rightly relate to the law under the grace of the gospel, and that we would freely and cheerfully do what the law requires to be done in our daily lives, in the strength of Christ, and for the glory of God. So that's point number one, fulfilling the law. Fulfilling the law. Let's look now at point number two, walking according to the Spirit. That's what Paul refers to in the second half of verse four. Look at the second half of the verse. 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's think first about what it means to be those who walk not according to the flesh, and then those who walk according to the Spirit. Your walk in the Bible is the way you live your life, your everyday life. Your walk is the path you take. It's the choices that you make each day. The words you speak, the things you do or don't do, your lifestyle, your character in action, the way you treat others, the things you watch or don't watch, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, the kinds of relationships you have, the things you talk about, the things you think about, what you pursue, what your goals are, what your aspirations are, where you're going in life, where you're headed, and the steps you're taking to get there. Your walk is your way, your path, the way you live your everyday life. And as Christians, we are those who walk not according to the flesh. We used to walk according to the flesh. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before we were converted, we used to walk according to the flesh. We lived for ourselves. We operated according to the world's value system. We didn't mortify the desires of the flesh. We satisfied the desires of the flesh. We were in bondage to sin. We were under the dominating power of sin. But now we've been set free. We've been set free from the dominating power of sin. But when we look at this verse and we see that it refers to believers as those who walk not according to the flesh, boy, we might get a little uncomfortable because we know that we still struggle with the flesh. If we're honest, we would say that there are times when we do walk according to the flesh. So what do we do with that? How should we think about that? As believers. Well, I think it's important to distinguish between walking according to the flesh and just struggling with the flesh. Walking according to the flesh is really living your whole life according to the flesh. It's living a sinful lifestyle. It's being committed to the world. It's living under the power of the evil one. Struggling with the flesh means you still sin but you hate sin. You still fall at times when you give in to temptation, but you get back up again in repentance and faith in Christ. You still have the flesh, but you're not committed to the flesh. The flesh is an unwelcome guest in the home of your heart. You're a new man now, a new woman, new boy, new girl. And though you have the flesh, You don't walk according to the flesh. You struggle against the flesh. You're no longer on the side of the world fighting against God. 
You're on the side of God fighting against the world. You're in God's army now. But because you're in God's army, you still fight. You still battle against the flesh. So there is a difference between walking according to the flesh and struggling against the flesh. As believers, we no longer walk according to the flesh by the grace of God, but we do struggle against the flesh. We must struggle against the flesh each new day. We say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be or look forward to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. We used to walk according to the flesh, but now by the grace of God, we walk according to the Spirit. We do so imperfectly, but we do so sincerely and believingly. We read a passage like Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And we say, yes, Lord, please help me to do that. Help me to do that today. That's what I want to do. We read Ephesians 5.8-11 and it resonates with our souls. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We read Psalm 1. And our heart's desire is that the Lord would enable us to live like the blessed man described there. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. As believers, we are called to walk according to the Spirit. And we are able to do so because we are indwelt and empowered by the Spirit. And when you put the two halves of this verse together, conceptually, you realize that walking according to the Spirit and fulfilling the law go together. When we walk according to the Spirit, then we fulfill the law. Because the Spirit wrote the law. It's the law of God written by the Spirit of God. God's purpose in saving us is that we would fulfill the law by the power of the Spirit. We can't fulfill the law in our own strength. But if we walk by the Spirit, we will walk in obedience to the law. So the point, the purpose of God freeing us from condemnation and sin is so that we would fulfill the law by the power of the Spirit. 
two things by way of application as we draw to a close. First, let me encourage you to ask yourself some self-examination questions in light of verse 4. Ask, is there an area of my life where I'm not fulfilling the law that requires special focus and attention? Put yourself under the searchlight of verse 4. Is there an area of my life where I'm not fulfilling the law that requires special focus and attention? Or a related question, in what ways am I walking according to the flesh and not the spirit? If I take that searchlight and I shine it on my heart, if I shine it into my mind, if I shine it onto my schedule, into my checkbook, onto my innermost desires... In what ways am I walking according to the flesh and not the spirit? Maybe it is in the area of your finances. Maybe it's in the realm of your sexuality. Maybe it's obedience to your parents or to other authority figures in your life. Maybe it has to do with telling the truth versus lying. Maybe it's the way you speak to your children or your spouse. Maybe it's the way you think about the Lord's Day prioritizing corporate worship above all else, keeping the whole Sabbath day holy. Maybe it's what you consume with your mouth or with your ears or with your eyes. Maybe it has to do with what you love most, what you delight in most. Is there an area of my life where I'm not fulfilling the law that requires special focus and attention? In what ways am I walking according to the flesh and not the spirit? And as you do that, remember, please remember, as it's been said, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look you take at your sin, as you put yourself under the spotlight, under the searchlight of God's law, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. When you see your sin, Make sure that you also see your Savior by faith. Confess your sin to him. He will be faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Second and finally, humbly recognize your need for the power of the Spirit in order to fulfill the law. Humbly recognize your need for the power of the Spirit in order to fulfill God's law. I was listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson recently. I've been making a habit of listening to his sermon on a particular text after I've preached that text. And in a recent sermon, he shared an illustration about a train. He was talking about a powerful steam engine from an old TV show called Casey Jones. 
Maybe you know it. And here's what he said. Now, how did Casey Jones's steam engine get to its destination with all that power in the engine boiler? Because there were rail tracks that kept the wheels going in the right direction. That train would never have moved if there wasn't power in the engine. But it would never have got to its destination unless there were train tracks on which it would run. Now, that's how the gospel works. The law does not give power in the engine of the Christian. But when the Holy Spirit gives power in the engine of the Christian, the way in which the Christian arrives in growing sanctification is by that marvelous, almost relentless obedience to the words of a gracious and holy and righteous and good God. A paradox there, isn't it? If you see the law on its own, it will kill you. But if you see the law in the hands of your gracious heavenly Father, having been born again by His Spirit and living in faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, then God's law is like God. It's holy, and obedience to it is holiness. I think that really captures it. It really captures what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. The law is the train tracks. The power in the engine is the Holy Spirit of God. We don't have the train tracks to run on. We're not headed in the right direction. But if we don't have power in the engine, we're not going anywhere. God set us free from condemnation and sin so that we would be able to fulfill the law by the power of the Spirit as we walk according to the Spirit. So we're the train. The track is clearly set out before us. It is straight ahead. But we have to have power in the engine. And the power does not come from the law. The law cannot give us the power we need. The power we need comes from the Spirit. And when we walk by the power of the Spirit, then we fulfill the law. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for giving us your law, and we thank you for giving us your spirit. We thank you also for giving us your son, who kept the righteous requirement of the law perfectly for us. And we thank you that because of him, we can now see the law for what it really is, not as an enemy, but as a friend, not as a judge, but as a guide. 
And we pray that you would empower us to fulfill the law more and more each day in our lives. Thank you that the power of the Spirit is sufficient to keep us going down the track. Help us to walk each day by the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.